0: It's with great luxury that we approach the word of God from the vantage point of our place in history. And it's with great mercy that we live at a time in the timeline of the course of man that the climax of the story of God's eternal plan is in our past And it's often lost on us that we have the written word of this story from beginning to end at arm's length. In our language, and mostly at no cost. In fact, if you don't have that story in your possession right now, raise your hand if you haven't already. Does everybody have this in their hand? Don't let it be lost on you, it is a privilege. So, with this great luxury and mercy, we have this privilege to focus our attention on the climax of the story and watch it change lives. We see Christ on the cross, and then we see him raised up from the grave as giving life and hope to a hopeless man. Now, this causes men to turn from sin into newness of life with their God, and their creator, so that each one who confesses Christ as Savior can say like the blind man, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And from just that, we inherit biblical promises and assurances that have been well recorded and guaranteed for a very long time. At ARC, this is the place we've been in the Romans 8 series. Hearing clearly in that series that if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, there is no condemnation because you have the Spirit of God and that Spirit of God lives in you. That sets you free from the law of sin and death. That message of grace and freedom is the good and right place for us to dwell. It's what gives us life. And it is, in fact, this mindset of the Spirit that will give life and peace and will cause you to desire the things that God would have you to desire despite your station in life. And all of this in anticipation of a future glory. And this is the end game to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if I can compare where we are, uh, where we have come into the biblical story from a Marvel Cinematic Universe standpoint, it's like watching Avengers Endgame as the first movie. Now I'm sure there were at least a handful of people who walked into Endgame having never seen the 21 previous films that led up to the finale of that saga. And surely, these people walked out feeling the emotions that the film is meant to evoke for everybody watching. Now, for many of these folks, they're going to go back and watch everything that led up to what happened in the end. That way, they'll better understand the significance of the culmination of that story. Now for those who walked into that film having already watched and remembered the scenes that had occurred over the past 10 years, there was this long-awaited resolve that satisfied that watcher's hope. How much more should we be compelled by the biblical narrative that is 6,000 years old? This isn't a story about imaginary characters with limited powers and colorful crystals, but about the omnipotent God and his enduring love for his people with whom he has covenanted with to enjoy an everlasting kingdom. And if Romans 8 is concerned with the implications of the endgame of that narrative, then there is a whole lot of prequel that can help to explain to us what got us to knowing That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Today, then, we'll zoom out from the climax and all of its beautiful imputation to see how we got here. This will not be an exhaustive study of the 4,000 years of human history prior to Christ's coming but we'll come to a place in the Old Testament that serves as a turning point in redemptive history and gives us a view of God's work from beginning to the end of this biblical narrative. So this insightful or maybe curious look at 2 Samuel 7 while holding Romans 8 within view will help demonstrate the thesis of our study today. That is that God's enduring love establishes his everlasting kingdom. God's enduring love establishes his everlasting kingdom. Second Samuel chapter 7. Now, if you're keeping an outline of the text, we will first find David's earthly position in verses 1 through 9a. David's earthly position, verses 1 through 9a. Secondly, we will find God's eternal perspective in verses 9b through 17. It is God's eternal perspective in verses 9b through 17. And just for sake of time, that's where we're going to stop the exposition, but if you want to have the the third point in this whole chapter, it would be David's enlightened praise and prayer in verses 18 through 29. David's enlightened praise and prayer in verses 18, 18 through 29. Everybody at 2 Samuel 7? Let's read. Now when the king lived in the house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastor, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies before you. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke. To David. Verses one through three give us David's earthly position just after he had come back from war against his nemesis, the Philistines. In conjunction with this victory, he has joyfully returned the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now the Ark was where God's law was kept and his presence remained. It would be placed in a, in a tabernacle, a, a tent that would sit at the center of the camps where his people would stay for a time. They would move about ever since the time of the exodus from Egypt into the wilderness and then into the promised land. And his people would stay in places for a time, and it was always meant to be a sign that God would have his rightful place among his people. It was previously carried with the Israelites as they traveled from place to place throughout the time of the Exodus, like I said. And then it went into the promised land as they, as they moved into Canaan. But interestingly, that conquest was never really completed. See, there was left a smattering of false gods throughout all the land as the people spread throughout its borders. Yet, the ark Stopped traveling. And it, and it resided in the middle of this promised land in Shiloh for around 370 years during the time of the judges. And during that time, things were terrible. Most of the Israelites would turn towards the false gods of the people that they were supposed to conquer. conquer. And so then they started to neglected the worship of the one true God. And this was their commission from Joshua. So they had no real hope of things getting better as they didn't have their focus on Yahweh, the one they were to serve. Now as the Israelites spiraled out of control, God's earthly position in the mind of the Israelites seemed of no concern. That is until out of desperation, the Israelites thought that they could use the Ark as a sort of weapon against the Philistines, who, at the Lord's allowance, stole the Ark and put it in their own temple of the false god Dagon. Now, this enraged God. It caused his wrath to meet the Philistines so much that it compelled them to return it to God's people. It then stayed in this town called kiriath Jearim. And this was during the time of Samuel. He was a priest who was worshiping this true God throughout this time of the judges. But it stayed there. And during that time also, the Israelites had this bad idea. This bad idea was to be more like the nations around them. They wanted a king Samuel thought this was a horrible idea. God told him this was a horrible idea, but they didn't care. They wanted a king. So God said, fine. Here's your king. His name is Saul. Saul didn't have much regard for the Lord. He disobeyed the Lord's commands and was therefore rejected by God. And he was rejected so that David might step into this role in the future so then Samuel anointed David, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, there was still much to happen between David's anointing and Saul's rejecting and David' sitting in this earthly position in a temple or in, in his palace, with the rest with rest from his enemies. So there was a lot that was going on throughout this whole history between God and his people, their disobedience and his law. But as far as this whole narrative is concerned, it's clear that the point in which David was sitting in his palace with rest from all sides was a a turning point in redemptive history. There was a, a change It was a high point in David's life after years of strife. He had fought Saul and enemies. But not only that, there was this weight of God's people who had endured hardship for hundreds of years before that moment. So it wasn't only personal for David, but there was this this national thing going on. And, And it didn't feel good for these hundreds of years. But still... God kept his people. He kept his promises to Abraham to multiply this people and to give them this land. So at this point, David's sitting in his palace saying, things are great. Promises are being fulfilled. I have rest from my enemies. I'm the king of the land. So David gets an idea. His idea is to build God a temple. Now, this is a fine idea. God even said to David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Still, God rejected this proposal. He did it at least for one reason that we know for sure was that David was a man of war. And a lot of times, we just kind of stop that there. David was a man of war. He couldn't build a temple. I I think there was at least a part of this that was caused by David having this earthly perspective. God's questions back to David were, were inquisitive. He was wondering, well, where did this idea come from? Well, now, we know that as the Israelites came into the Promised Land, that it was common for temples to be built to all of these false gods all over the region. And it was likely that even before they came to the Promised Land in Egypt, they had been building temples as, as slaves for the Egyptian gods. They were well familiar with these temples. They displayed might and wealth amongst the nations. There were large implications to what these buildings would say about who the people were. So it would hold naturally that David would want to honor God in a way that would communicate God's preeminence to all the nations. Yet still God responds in verse 5, "Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people from Israel from Egypt or the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in my tent for a dwelling." In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built a house of cedar for me? But even with this rejection of David's idea, as we will see in the next section, God will take this desire and he's going to redeem it, he's going to make it better to fulfill a much greater purpose. Now, years earlier, there was another proposal that seemed surprising that I mentioned a little while ago, and in that reaction, God was more direct than inquisitive. That was when Israel decided that it needed a king because all the other nations had kings. Now, this was a true affront to the true king. It was the true king, God, Yahweh, who brought his people out of Egypt, who had driven out the people before them into the land of Canaan. Had God not been this king who went out before them and increased their number and kept this, this covenant that he had with Abraham? See, the problem was that the people forgot this because they had been so ingrained in the cultures of the land of the people that they didn't drive out that they were missing who God was to them. They were too focused on the false gods that they were running into when they were taking up wives and, and, and taking up their idols. It was a, a very large time of confusion for these people. So this request for these people to have a king, God saw something that desperately needed redemption. Now David was only the second king. There was Saul and then David. And already at that point, God started redeeming this whole idea of having a, kin, a king through David. David. This is what God does. He takes our ideas that may be flawed or not fully formed or maybe didn't come from him, and he is going to redeem them by his spirit. He is going to teach us what the right way is. He says in verse 8 and 9, David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies before you. David, don't get it twisted. I'm the one in control. I'm the true king. I'm the one who raises up kings, and I'm the one who tears them down. It's on my plan that all things are going to work out. So now we've got these two earthly Israelite positions in view that we come to God's plan in 2 Samuel. We've got this temple, and we've got kingship. And so at this point in 2 Samuel, we come to a place that's commonly called the Davidic Covenant. And it serves as this launching pad for everything to occur for God's people in the future. And here is where God's eternal perspective overwhelms David's, and by extension, Israel's, earthly position. Verse 9. Okay, now, here's the signal that David's current position of enjoying rest in his palace was not a finished work. The kingship and the land were still being worked out. David was enjoying rest from his enemies in verse 1, yet God was pressing toward a greater rest and a truer peace for his people. Of course, this was confirmation of the covenant God had made with Abraham in Genesis 17:8 and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God Now notice there's a link in that covenant between occupying the land and right relationship with God Everlasting possession and I will be their God. Therefore, David isn't wrong to think that worship of the one true God is a necessary and integral part to a thriving nation which would bear God's own name. His desire to build a temple was indeed right. It's just that man's concept of worshiping God often falls into categories that too easily lead to worshiping in the wrong way. At best, our our concepts of worship can be paltry gifts like heart-shaped boxes of generic chocolate on Valentine's Day. But at worst, they can be hurtful betrayals like selfish displays of grandstanding. Therefore, it is God who must set the agenda. It is he who must appoint the manner of all rule and worship for his people. After Abraham, he set out the Mosaic Covenant and provided his law for this purpose. Who remembers what happened then? Immediately, right away, his people failed. Immediately. This helps to confirm what we read in Romans 8. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did. Now, hold on, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to keep going. We're going to wait. Because we, we know the end game. But we're looking here from David's perspective. And this is where God lays out what he's going to do from David's earthly position. Verse 11. more so. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. It's like like a rocket. God blasts off this eternal perspective that is vastly more beautiful vision than the one enjoyed from David's earthly perspective. Rather than man building a house for God, God will build a house for man. This is more than just a house. It's an everlasting kingdom. It will be established in enduring love. So in this promise, we have both the Israelites' functional issues addressed, the king and the temple, but there are still questions. So we need to break it down a bit. So I, I think we need to do this, and this is, this is the hardest part of when we're going through prophecies and all this, and um, I've done my best, uh, but we're going to do this by, by separating out forever statements from the rest, okay? Firstly, David will die, and his son will be a king who builds the temple. We see that in verses 12 and 13, And God's steadfast love will never leave this son even after sinning. We see that in verses 14 and 15. So that's one subset. David will die. There'll be a son who builds a temple. The steadfast love will never leave that son. Now, secondly, we come into this crossover between the two where where God says in verse 14, I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. Now, we, we, we look at this and we go, okay, um, that makes sense for, for David's son. Is there more here? Well, there, there must be more because, thirdly, we, we get to these forever statements where God himself, will build, uh, God himself will build this everlasting house or kingdom. Now, that's in verse 11. That's where it starts. And the king will have an everlasting throne. So we know that there's something more about this father and son relationship because it's going to be everlasting kingdom. There's going to be a throne that that this person would exist on. So now let's examine the first set. And again, we're going to go into into this biblical narrative. There is a son who takes the throne after David dies. 1 Kings 3, 6. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in an uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And indeed, this son Solomon builds the temple that David had on his heart. David, in fact, gave the, the plans of the temple that the spirit had given to him. So God's hand was in the whole process. There was a a hope and a glory that these kings and, and the people were anticipating in this whole process. The temple would be beautiful, it would show splendor and majesty of the God of Israel. Its dedication would be a beautiful ceremony where the song, He is good, his steadfast love endures forever, would be on repeat. The physical house was being built to represent everlasting love. It was a a sign. It was a symbol. There's something to note here, though. God knew that true worship in the temple was going to be challenging for his people. He drops this interesting word on Solomon in the middle of the building process. He says, concerning this house that you're building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Now, I've been a project manager on a, more than a few construction sites. And there's always so much anticipation prior to building the structure. Everybody's excited and All the material gets procured. Winning a contract and and being released for construction is like the most wonderful feeling you can have at work. But then comes the hard part. Not only do you have to perform on site, you need to be sure that the product installed will be sufficient for the life of the building. And I must say that one of the most disconcerting feelings when you are in the middle of an installation is when the owner walks up to remind you of that contract. Maybe not because you had planned anything going wrong or not meeting that contract, but just because something might happen, either by accident or unintentionally, things are sometimes out of your control on a construction site. Or maybe Because you know your company doesn't have a good track record on installations. You have real fears of failure. I don't know where Solomon's head was at at the time. But I do think God was playing the owner role here. He is quite clear on Israel's track record. And it's not good. In addition, he's got this eternal perspective of what's going to come next. In fact, God appears to Solomon at the end of the project again. And he gives him a direct warning that if he and the people forsake the Lord, the temple will become a heap of rubble. So Right after this beautiful, glorious building's up, God's like, hey, I will tear this down. The overarching message from God here is not to trust in the temple or its splendor, or its might. Trust and obey God in faith. That is salvation. That is true worship. Well, almost immediately, Solomon and Israel forsake the Lord. Solomon takes up hundreds of wives, and he picks up their idols with him. Israel begins to crumble. The kingdom splits, and king after king does wickedness for about 300 years until there's this breaking point when Jeremiah comes onto the scene. Now, Jeremiah comes with this message of destruction of Jerusalem and brings this word in chapter 7 of his book Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the father, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, if you trust in deceptive words to no avail... Will, will, you, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord." Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name to dwell at first, and see what I did, I did to it because of the evil people of Israel. And now, because you have done these things, declares the Lord, when I, spoke to you, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, And to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kingsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. It was during this time King Josiah was reigning. And he was a good king. He was said to completely follow the ways of his father David. So we see this line of David continuing to run in God's faithfulness despite all of these horrible things happening. Now, Josiah hasn't had his heart to help to restore the temple. So in the midst of trying to restore it, teams are sent in to to get some work done. And the high priest, Hilkiah, reports, I have found the book of the law in the temple. What? What? What do you mean you found the book of the Lord in the temple? You mean in the house of the Lord, the word of the Lord was in the basement? It was neglected? It was dusty? Well, now there's no question about why true worship wasn't occurring in that place. Josiah was wrecked by this, and he went out on a spree. He went out to tear down all the high places, all the idols, of all the false gods, uh, of all the false gods, so that they could live in accordance with the law that was found. But these reforms were too late. Judgment prophesied by Isaiah and by Jeremiah was already upon Judah. Soon thereafter the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and God's people were exiled. Now, 70 years pass. The exiles return to Jerusalem, and a second temple is constructed. We remember this from our series in Ezra earlier this year. But this temple isn't quite the same as the first. So much so that some of the older folks who had seen the first temple at the dedication of the foundation, they just wept. Now, this temple would stand for about 600 years. But in the 70 years, the last part of that temple's life, we would see Jesus enter. First, as a child, as a child. And then as he grew on an annual trip that his parents would go up, remember the time he was 12 and he just hung back and he decided just to stay there and his parents were like, hey, where's Jesus at? And he was like, oh, he was back there. He got to walk back. And, he, and as he got older and as he observed everything that was going on in there, what Jesus found wasn't much different from what we would expect when we read the prophets. Jesus entered the temple In Matthew, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus was well acquainted with the history of Israel, he's the very word of God. He's the one putting together this plan. Now that temple, the one that Jesus knew, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD during the time when the Jews were driven from Jerusalem a second time. I think the point is clear that the prophecy on the house built by David's son would not be the ultimate and everlasting house. It wasn't about a physical building. Even still, God provides the guarantee to David that enduring love would not be taken from his son despite the sin that spirals out of control. In addition to that, guarantee is a sonship. Look at 2 Samuel 7.14 where we see that this descendant is not only David's son but also a son of God. Now, this explains why the faithful love would not be taken from him despite his sin. There was a, a, a down the line view if God had cut off in between the, the foretold one, the messiah, the christ and and David. We, we wouldn't be able to continue in the story, right? Then we'd be in, in the true Marvel Cinematic Universe where you have to take a stone, you have to do something, you have to change reality, you got to change time, you got to do something to get from here to there. So in God's story, we're going to go all the way through by his steadfast love. There's a, a kinship, a bond that is far more substantial than a transactional relationship Surely this would have meant something very significant to David. But he he couldn't quite grasp the weight of what this would mean. Again, from his earthly position, it's it's a very different place than ours. We have the privilege of, of more insight from the eternal perspective of God through his word. Hebrews 1 tells us that the one to whom God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son is the Messiah himself, the creator himself, God himself. The writer says that in these last days we are spoken to by his son. And we have the confidence then that the Davidic covenant is not fulfilled in the temple nor in an imperfect descendant king, but by God himself. This could be the only way that the kingdom could be everlasting. It had to be through the true Adam, the true Israel, Christ. Now, let's go back to Romans 8, 3 and finish. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Uh, Now we see it perfect obedience to God, that is, following the law, is impossible for any human. It was impossible for David. It was impossible for Solomon. It's impossible for me. It's impossible for you. And it was impossible for all the blood of goats and rams sacrificed in the temple to take away that sin flesh itself could not solve what was inherently a spiritual problem. And so it had to be God himself as our Savior. Hebrews goes to great lengths to show us that, that this type of worship, the temple worship, was a, just a shadow of things to come through Christ. It reads in chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is how we see the biblical story as so compelling. God chooses This one way in the midst of so little hope. This sure guarantee, but at a great cost. This deep spiritual work required God himself to take on our sin. The sin of the whole world to be a sin offering for us. That means every time a sacrifice took place in the temple, it was a foreshadowing of Christ giving himself on the cross and having his blood shed. It was all pointing to one moment. You know what my favorite part of the Marvel Infinity Saga is? It's that moment in Endgame right right before the snap. So in Doctor Strange... He, he looks over at Tony, and he just calmly holds up one finger. The gravity of that moment isn't lost on anybody. After everything that had occurred in 22 movies, there was one way to redemption. Proof that Tony Stark has a heart. but the heart of a superhero does not compare to the enduring, steadfast, faithful love of the one true God. The one who establishes the everlasting kingdom of the Son. It was no mistake that the proper temple worship at the outset was loud and clear that he is good. His love endures forever. So if that is the case for physical buildings... How much more for his everlasting kingdom? His love for us, compelling him to die a gruesome death for us, had this great joy set before him. Back to Romans 8. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus didn't stay in the grave. His sin offering was different. His sin offering was so perfect that death could not hold him. The Spirit raised him from the dead so that the eternal kingdom would be established forever. David's line would continue forever and ever and ever. All of this deep work was so that we, who were previously cut off from God, outside of right relationship with him, could have access to the Father by one Spirit. You see, having Christ is to have the spirit. This is how we have newness of life. All people everywhere. The Israelites, to whom belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. Even though they utterly regarded disregarded these things time and time again, they could have newness of life. And for the rest of us, the nations who had been left to worship other gods, we didn't have these same privileges that God's people did. We can have newness of life in the spirit. All people can come near to God and worship in spirit And in truth. And guess what? The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So I implore you, in light of all history, worship Christ. As has been repeated over and over the past couple of weeks Jesus is King. If you haven't done this yet, let me explain to you how you can receive this newness of life, receive this spirit, and worship Christ the King. As we've talked about, every single one of us is a sinner. We are created by God in his image and we hopelessly fell short of that that call, of that relationship. And instead of worshiping him and being with him, we turned to our own devices, to our own idols, to our own temples and sinned against him. We forsook the Lord in the same way that the Israelites did time and time again. But still God loves us so much That he sent his son to die on a cross for us and be the sacrifice for our sin. And if only we turn from our sin and turn to that Christ, that true King of Israel, we can be saved and be raised in newness of life, having the Spirit and being in full fellowship with this great God. Accept him today, turn from your sins. And turn towards Christ and worship the true God in spirit and in truth. Now, let's bring the Davidic covenant full circle circle in its implications for us, beyond this great message that I've just shared. When we accept this message of salvation, we join this Davidic line of kings in this eternal kingdom. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified in him. And not only that, but all of this great love builds this eternal house. As members of this household, as heirs of Christ, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into, here comes, a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. So the whole story comes together in Christ by God through his spirit. A few application points. One, tear down false gods. All of the high places. All of the strongholds. Like Josiah with fervor, get rid of them. If you don't, they will be destructive to your life. It is the pattern of 6,000 years of human history. Two, hold those physical temples, those, those buildings that we construct, and, and oftentimes with God's blessing, sometimes not. Maybe, maybe He has said, you know, you, you can do what you want with this, but hold those things in its proper place. Don't worship them that job you have, that house you have, that car you had, that station in life that you have. Understand that we are now in the Spirit. We have an eternal dwelling. Whatever happens here from our earthly position is is pale in comparison to our eternal perspective of being in Christ. And thirdly, worship the true temple in spirit, and in truth. Know your place in Christ. Understand that you have this unbelievable fellowship with him, fellowship with him that can never be taken away. He loves you steadfastly, and he builds in you an everlasting kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the great love that you have shown to us. We thank you that you are a God who has worked out so many little details, so many uh, horrific stories, so many situations that we could not understand or comprehend to work out for the good for those that you love. Help us to understand our place. Help us to understand that we ought to be in the Spirit that if we are in Christ, we have the spirit of Christ. And that collectively we're being built up into this eternal kingdom where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and his people will all be gathered together forever. Thank you, Lord, for this great message of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.